My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Behold, two of them, of the disciples of the Lord, were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which is 60 stadia from Jerusalem. And they were talking to each other about all these things that had happened. All the, the events of the passion of our Lord. And it came to pass while they were conversing and arguing together that Jesus himself also drew near and went along with them. But their eyes were held that they should not recognize him. And he said to them, What words are these that you are exchanging as you walk and are sad? Well, we are on retreat today, beginning a, a time of prayer with our Lord. And we have to thank him for his presence here in the Blessed Sacrament, which is such a privilege simply to have him so close in this kind of upper room, just like the apostles perhaps we can think of ourselves as the, the nascent church in Jerusalem, which you know, went together with, with Mary, waiting for the Holy Spirit as they you know, were praying for a conversion. And this is what a retreat is all about, a conversion of heart. And I have chosen this theme of the road going to Emmaus with these two disciples because right in the middle, they don't get to Emmaus. They actually turn around. There's a big turnaround moment, which literally is a sign of their conversion because they were running away from the cross. They were running away from the events that they had witnessed. They had been let down in their eyes because Jesus was supposed to, in their opinion, liberate them from the Romans in a political way. They had political expectations. And their Savior was a fraud because he, he was not supposed to die. He was supposed to have conquered, been victorious, paraded trophies of the Romans, kind of rubbed it in their face or something like that. And the Jews were supposed to have a new kind of Davidic kingdom, once again with the glory of David and Solomon before the, the split of you know, the, the kingdom of Israel, the north and the south, and all the problems that they had. These men were nostalgic, in other words. They were waiting for something to happen that would bring them back to the good old days. To the good old days. And when that did not happen, when they had proof that this was 
a fake. It was fake news. Jesus, the gospel for them was fake news. The resurrection, it was a few women who said, you know, they've seen angels. This is, this is the last thing we need. They said, you know, we're out of here. We're going to go back to Emmaus, which is our little town where we grew up, where, where it used to be safe for us, where we, where we knew where the up was up and down was down. There was, everything was black or white. There was no nuanced concepts. Everything was perfect. Everything was straightforward. Everything was known. You know, it's kind of like their version of Rosebud and Citizen Kane longs for his childhood. He wants to go back because that's the only time he was happy when he didn't have much, but he was just there with his sled. I think I gave away the movie, sorry for the spoiler alert. <laughs> but we have to see ourselves in the same way. We are here with our Lord. I don't know if we're running away from something. I don't know what our idea of salvation or conversion is. Certainly these disciples were looking for safety. They were looking for an insurance policy. They were looking for for something that, for a future, but really not a future with God, but with, you know, somehow a future in this world. Happiness in this world. Their hearts were restless, as St. Augustine says, but they did, I don't think they were looking for God. They were not looking for Christ. They were looking for other material things that would give them this comfort. They were looking for a comfortable life because they had been duped. And here we are contemplating a scene in the gospel that is kind of the opposite. These disciples at Emmaus were not looking for Christ. They were running away from Christ. They did not know Christ because the Christ they knew was too human a Christ, was the political Messiah. And they certainly did not love Christ because their love ended at death. Unlike the other women, actually, who went to the tomb even afterwards to anoint his body, that love went beyond death. But the good news is that in spite of their their running away and, and, and their defects and their just kind of nervous attitude of just saying, we're out of here, Christ is the one who looks for them. Christ is the one who actually runs up behind them. He's the one who seeks them. And they don't know Christ, but Christ is the one who reveals himself to them. He is the one that will open up the scriptures for them. As he has that conversation with them, which is kind of tough, he calls them foolish, you know, even as we will see. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. Wow. Can you imagine? And he reveals all that. All the mysteries of Scripture and of himself that spoke about. The 
prophets, Moses. And they did not love Christ perfectly. They were kind of putting him on hold. They were putting their love on hold just to see if he would deliver. It was kind of like, well, we're, we're just here to see. We're not totally convinced, but show us the money and then we'll, we'll believe. But it didn't matter because Christ loved them. He looks for the lost sheep and he, he goes out of his way, we could say, we could think. Obviously, just coming down in the incarnation is going out of his way already because God was perfect. He didn't need to come down at all. But here, even after the resurrection, he, quote, goes out of his way, if that makes any sense, because he could be everywhere, in order to look for these two disciples and bring them back. And once converted, once they actually recognize him, they turn around and they, they go back to Jerusalem and become witnesses of the resurrection, witnesses of the gospel. And they serve. And they maybe even, we don't know who these two were. One of them is named Cleophas, but we don't know anything about the other one. We don't know where Cleophas ended up either. Was he a martyr like the other apostles? Was he tortured in order to show that this this was true, the fact that they saw the resurrected Christ. But it didn't matter how much they had to suffer in the end because once they saw someone come back from the dead, uh, there was an incredible joy that was transmitted to them and they would never, ever leave that thought again. And there would be no more obstacles for them and we have to see that this is the same story that has to be repeated in each one of us. We have to find out where, and this weekend hopefully, we can ask the Holy Spirit to, to help us. And we can ask our Lord here in the Blessed Sacrament, Jesus. We want to hang around with you because you are kind of like the atomic... Um, radiating light here that if you want to get radiation therapy just come to the tabernacle just you don't even have to do anything just like radiation therapy just sit there get radiated our lord radiates his love our lord radiates his his gospel for each one of us these stories of the gospel that we read are anecdotes that the early church was fed with. They told them over and over again until somebody put them in writing. Luke, after much research, as he says in his introduction to his gospel, because people were distorting them a little bit. And he says, look, just so you know the truth, here it is. I have gone to the sources. Maybe he knew Cleophas and the other disciple and he got it firsthand from them. What had happened on the way to Emmaus? Well, the Holy Spirit has picked up all these stories, all these anecdotes from the eyewitnesses so that you and I can also read them. But, well, as St. Jose Maria says, not only read them, but actually live them. He says, 
And this is something that is also good to do on retreat, is to open up the gospel and get into the shoes of, the, of any character that you like. This weekend I'm proposing this passage for you. But he says, St. Maria says, when you open up the Holy Gospel, think that what is written there, the words and deeds of Christ, is something that you should not only know but live. Everything, every point that is told there has been gathered detail by detail for you to make it come alive in the individual circumstances of your life. The Gospel for us has to be like a pop-up book. You open it up and it just pops up. And it's something that, that really is relevant to today, to my life. God has called us to follow him closely. In that holy writing, you will find the life of Jesus, but you should also find your own life there. You too, like the apostle, will learn to ask full of love, Lord, what would you have me do? And in your soul you will hear the conclusive answer, the will of God. Take up the gospel every day then and read it and live it as a definitive rule. This is what the saints have done. This is where the saints have found their call, their mission in the gospel. This is where the saints have drawn new energy, to just to be inspired by what our older brothers and sisters in the faith have done so that we too may believe. And this weekend, the journey that the disciples back to Emmaus took and their process of turning around is something that we have to replicate step by step. And that's why the meditations will just take one step at a time, if we can almost take one step at a time, I don't know, 60 stadia, that's a lot of steps, but every little passage we hope to kind of unfold and digest in our own prayer in the presence of our Lord in the tabernacle. And we have the grace to do so. And just like these two, we and the whole of humanity have to see ourselves as running away from something we need to address, but that we are afraid. And we see the whole world kind of running away from something. We have, a lot of people have identified this in today's world as people are escaping something. They want to escape. People, some people take drugs to escape something. Other people, I don't know, watch romantic movies like go back to La La Land or something like that. They want to stay there. Actually, that movie is quite quite interesting to to watch because it is it is I think it's a critical commentary on the Hollywood kind of uh, they lived happily ever after, which doesn't exist, you know. And and it brings you to reality, back to reality. And we have to come back. To reality where do we have kind of reveries that dreams that will never come true you know what are we looking for where is what do we yearn for do we yearn for a foregone happiness that will that will not and cannot come back 
What we're really doing is we're searching for meaning. We want meaning. We want to understand. And in fact, here the disciples, going back to Emmaus, what their problem is, is that they had the wrong interpretation of the events. They had the events right, actually, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in work and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be sentenced to death and crucified him. They got the dots right. All the dots are there. there there's no dispute about that. Yes, and besides all these things, today is the third day since these things came to pass. And moreover, certain women of our company who were at the tomb before it was light astounded us. And not finding his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels. But we were hoping that it was he who would redeem Israel. We were hoping, because we don't hope now. <laughs> we're no longer hoping. We have lost that hope. And we want to get it back by going to this little town called Emmaus. You know, this is where it represents our hope. I don't know if you've read the book uh, Man's Search for Meaning. It's, a, it's an account of, of uh, Viktor Frankl, who was a psychiatrist from Vienna, who was Jewish and taken to a concentration camp, actually several, I think three concentration camps in, throughout the course of World War II. And he survived. But he was kind of astonished how people who were strong, healthy, young, would actually die of fever at some point, typhus fever or something like that, disease. And they just wouldn't make it. Whereas older people who were frail, who you know were not as strong, who, who just kept working, they would kind of survive. They were survivors, and they just keep on going. And he, as a psychiatrist, began to ask them, actually interview them one by one, kind of thing. Why, you know, what makes you kind of go on, you know? And he discovered that. People who had some kind of expectation after the war, like their wife waiting for them or, or, or some mission that they had to carry out, that that kept them alive. It was something that, you know, it was like the little carrot that kept them alive. And they would kind of develop even antibodies to fight in, with their immune system all the diseases that were going around. But they had to do something. And that's what really gave them hope. And then he talks about all these um, foremen who would give them cigarettes for doing something well. And he says the prisoners would insert their cigarettes into their sleeve, would sew them into their sleeve, because, of course, they didn't want to smoke them. They wanted to keep them for later. And he said, but when, some, when he saw someone, when he would see someone smoking all their cigarettes like chain smoking, he knew that they were going to die the following day or two days later or three days later because they had given up hope. They were cashing in, so to speak. And that's what people would do when they would lose hope is they would say, well, I have these cigarettes. Why am I going to keep them? So these cigarettes kind of became the symbol of hope. If you had many of them, you were still going to, you're still going to live. Why? Because you were expecting it. You, were, you would smoke them some other day.
But if you didn't have any hope, you didn't have any other day. Smoke them now. Smoke them if you got them. Okay. The question for us is, where do we place our hope? And this, hopefully, is something that, I mean, you can probably answer it now. We all know the right answer. We say, our Lord, our faith. But upon closer examination, you know, when was the last time I lost my peace? When was the last time I kind of lost my presence of God or yelled at someone or got angry? Why was, I, why was I angry? Why did I lose it? Or why, why was I disappointed? Maybe I was placing my hope in something else. Maybe I was looking forward to something good but human, ultimately. Maybe you know, I, I get a kick out of the Israelites who, you know, after being liberated by Moses, and they go through the desert, and of course they have no food, so they ask God for food, and and they get manna. And I don't know what manna is like, but I, I imagine it's like a like your your generic carbohydrate or something like that. I don't know, maybe with a little bit of protein or something. I don't know, but it's like a potato-looking thing, or little little pieces of potato, or something like that. That is tasteless, but it feeds you. You can survive on it. And But the important thing is that they were liberated, they had freedom, they were no longer slaves. And yet after a while of just eating manna day and night, the Israelites say, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, quote, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt for nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. <laughs> well, you know. Sometimes we can complain because all we have is manna to look at. I don't know. And we yearn for the garlic in Egypt. <laughs> Give us the garlic, Lord. The cucumbers in Egypt. I mean, you got to be desperate in order to just yearn for garlic and, and cucumbers in Egypt, you know? But we have to see ourselves as capable of that. As capable of going, down, going so low as that, you know? I just, you know, what is it that... What is it that I want? What is it that I seek? We, we can become lethargic like, like the Israelites if we are not careful. But if we actually focus on the truths of our faith, on the truths that give us light, that feed us, because you see, what, feed us, what feeds us is not food, it's not bread. Man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's why we've got to read Scripture. And we have to meditate on it. And we have to feed ourselves off of it. Those are the truths that wake us up from this lethargy of comfort. And we will be able to interpret, if we ask our Lord for the right interpretation, 
yes, we have the historical events, the dots, but now we need to connect the dots the way he connects them, not the way that, that our pride connects them or our laziness connects them or our vanity or our envy. Sometimes we will connect the same dots. We, we all agree with the events, but the disciples at Emmaus, they connect the dots differently in a way that leads them to despair, in a way that leads them to tell the story that is not true and it doesn't give them hope. Whereas when Jesus explains it to them, he gives them new light, new hope, but the same events. He just draws a new a new storyline through them. And not a new one, the real one. Gives them the truth, which gives them hope. You know, it's funny, in Greek, the word for truth is aletheia. Aletheia, which comes from a means none. Lethea is the, the root word for lethargy or kind of forgetfulness. It's a non-forgetfulness. The truth is a remembering of, of what? Of the love of God, of who we are, of your vocation, of the truths that light up your life, your faith, but your faith in, in, in understood more deeply your marriage, your, the love of God, the fact that you are a child of God, that you are a daughter of God. This is what gives us light. This is what feeds us. And if, as St. Paul says, if God is with us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? We have to take stock of that time and again, that it doesn't matter how bad our lives have been, how sinful they may have been. As Jacques Philippe says, in his book, Interior Freedom, he says, we have to have the right, we, have, we are, as children of God, we have the freedom to be sinners. And he says, freedom to be sinners doesn't mean that we are free to sin without worrying about the consequences. That would be irresponsibility. He says, but we have the right, kind of right to be poor before God. God knows our weaknesses and infirmities, but he is not scandalized by them and doesn't condemn us as tenderly as a father treats his children, so Yahweh treats those who fear him. He knows that we are what we are made of. He remembers that we are dust. But at the same time, he gives us and reminds us of the truth of who we are. Like the prodigal son, when he comes back, when he turns around, he says, I'm not, no longer worthy to be called a son. Treat me as one of your hired servants, Father. And, and the Father has none of that. He says, no. <laughs> you are my son. And I'm going to remind you of who you are by giving you the ring, the hug, the kiss, the sandals, the robe, the fatted calf, the symphony, the party. Everything. Your property again. But I've squandered it. No problem. We'll get it back. You got it all back. You're here. You're alive. This is what's important. Everything else is irrelevant, actually. His sins are irrelevant. Once he's converted, they're irrelevant. The same thing, hopefully, will happen to us. We will be able to have an encounter with Jesus. He, he who seeks us more than we seek him. And hopefully also through the sacramental grace and the sacrament of reconciliation, 
we can forget our sins, put them behind us, so that we can begin again and make that that turnaround and go back to Jerusalem where we came from, wherever our Jerusalem is, go back home and actually be able to be witnesses of the joy of the gospel. This is, in a nutshell, the structure of this retreat. The meditations will follow these themes. You may want to take notes to whatever you get inspired to to recall in the Holy Spirit makes you recall in your life or whatever he inspires you to, to remember. Pray about those things. Pray before our Lord here in the chapel or take a walk or, or go to the shrine next to the lake there with Our Lady and talk to her. She, she did not understand everything in her life either. Why, you know, why was Jesus lost at the temple for three days? She was worried. She, I mean, can you imagine a mother losing her child? And then she finds him at the temple and she asks him a question. Why did you do this? Did you not know that we were looking for you? That's as close as she got to a correction because she could not correct God. You know, it's like, well, why? But she did. She was perplexed. Why? Why? She wanted to know the meaning of that. What was the meaning of that? She was out of her wits. What were you trying to do with this, Lord, basically? What is the meaning? What is the interpretation of this event in my life that made me lose my peace? And our Lord answers, did you not know that I was supposed to be in my father's house? Divine filiation. That's the truth that enlightens everything. The fact that he is the son of God and that we are called to be children of God as well. And what did Mary do with that truth, with that aletheia, that, that, with that interpretation of that event? She prayed about it. As the gospel says, she kept all these things in her heart and treasured them. This is exactly, that, that was her retreat. That was her version of the retreat. She had an ongoing retreat because she had the habit of actually always turning to our Lord. And that's exactly what you and I need to do as well. This Adopt this very Marian attitude of praying about the the inspirations we get here on the retreat. Well, let us turn to her as we go off to bed tonight and ask her to help us always go to her son, always go to the center, which is Christ, her son, our Lord. She will always take us there because she, as a good mother of God, is like a monstrance that shows him to the whole world. And she's always pointing at him. If we turn to her, we will, we will make a great retreat. We will understand our lives a little more and go deeper in the meaning of who we are, of our vocation, of the truths that will feed us ultimately and feed one another as well when we go back. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations which you have communicated to me in this meditation. 
I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.